Welcome to the Athletic MBA Show. Monday through on the Athletic Podcast Network. From the Golden Gate to the New York Bay. What I have access to is a bit different than the public. Tamper with you. Welcome to Tampering. We're this beautiful game of basketball that we all love and talk about every single day. So Sam King, Anthony Slater, uh-huh. and Fred Katz. To be able to bring uh-huh. people together. Reportedly at the center of an NBA investigation into tampering accusations. And the message to executives in the league is stop talking about players on other teams. What did I do? The charges filed. Impermissible contact. Right or wrong. Tampering charges are really difficult to prove. You know me, I talk. Awkward to even talk about it. I can't even mention Deans anymore. Actually, what I like to put in cover the ring. Trial, you're one with tampering. They're always ahead of the rules. It's not rocket science. I have tamper with the guys. I didn't tamper. I'm just telling you what happened. I'm just telling you what happened. Here's your host, Sam Amick. Hello and welcome to the Tampering Podcast, part of the Athletic NBA Show Network. I'm Sam Amick, NBA National Writer at The Athletic. He is Anthony Slater, Warriors Beat Writer, etc. at The Athletic. All things NBA as well. Uh, we are here uh, for the first episode of Tampering in the new year, 2023. Happy New Year to all the listeners. We appreciate your following of us, your listening, your hopefully getting entertained along the way. Fred Katz is not joining us this week. He'll be back next week. Slater, what's up, brother? Happy New Year. What up? I feel like we haven't been on together for a while. It has been a minute. The Amick family took a little, um, it's become a little bit of a, of a routine. At some point in December, we unplug briefly uh, because the the mentality, the strategy, the philosophy, Slater, is that we will be doing this coverage-wise, you know, through June and then July with free agency, and so it's a pit stop. You know what I mean? The we uh, the family. I got my wife's a teacher. The 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 boys are obviously in school. They get a break during the the winter holiday, and so we may have gone to Disneyland for a couple of days. You guys picked up the slack, which I greatly appreciated. I survived the happiest place on earth. You're of the mindset that the NBA doesn't begin until Christmas. That's uh, that's a Sam Amick ethos. Yes. Well, perfect pivot. Although I I feel like whenever people ask about this little little kind of breather that I'll take in December, I feel obligated to give a shout out to friend and colleague Brian Windhorst of ESPN because years ago Brian was the one who put the the thought in my head. He does something similar, um, and and it was like all those years as a beat writer, you are kind of programmed to be like, no, you don't take a breather at all, you know, during the season. It's just not okay. But the national job, I mean, listen, you're the exception because when you cover the Warriors, you're going to be typically covering things through June anyway while being a beat writer. But, um, you know, for national guys, you know you're going to be going through June. And and so that's the idea. So I took Brian's advice, had a good time, have done that for quite a few years. But here's the perfect pivot uh, for this week's episode of Tampering is that you kind of alluded to it like, all right, you're of the belief that the season doesn't really begin and there you know until around Christmas and and there is some truth in that, right? Like for me, if you go back to the the 2010 lockout, that was when I first really learned in terms of the NBA world that that was a a, a real thing. David Stern, the late great David Stern was negotiating hard with the players back then and really not budging whatsoever when it comes to the possible start of the season. And he had clearly earmarked, you know, that Christmas Day date as 
the kind of the the final frontier that he he did not want to have the season start after that for business reasons and and it's a real thing um the casual fans don't really pay attention the first couple of months and uh and i think that idea remains and, and remains true right now you remember the post bubble season too they really like kind of like crunched the beginning of the next season um to, to get, get it christmas in i believe opening right. night because they wanted an opening night which was like december 23rd or something like that yeah. and then a christmas slate so yeah i mean it it matters a lot to the league obviously just from a financial perspective right getting those games uh in front of a big audience and i would say on a normal like in a normal season like this from a schedule perspective it is a good checkpoint you know, I did a big like kind of warrior state of the union type piece right before because it's like you have a good, decent chunk of games, but also you feel like a lot is ahead and it's a good time to go like, where is everything at? For sure. I don't know if you run into this, too, but to that point, um, every once in a while, and this happened to me like a week ago, I'll be talking to a friend who enjoys the league, but is not hardcore. And uh, and, and I got a buddy, Brian Duncan out in Minnesota, uh, who's a, a eternally frustrated Timberwolves fan which which by the way we will get to that later we're going to talk about what's happening in Minnesota but Brian said to me recently he's like oh I don't really watch you know the first couple of months you know it's it's just I don't really pay attention till January like it, it's real and people are busy and and now is the time they start locking in a little bit so why don't we do that uh this week we're gonna make the rounds like always um you know but but first and foremost I think we're gonna hit on the Denver Nuggets which have you know, that found their way to the top of the Western Conference, earned their way to the top of the Western Conference. Nikola Jokic is playing his tail off again. I think creating some really interesting questions in the MVP race that that uh, that are worth unpacking. Uh, you know, they had a, a big time win over Boston last night. We're recording here on Monday morning, and this won't we won't have this result for the pod, but they play uh, Minnesota tonight which is an interesting reunion game tim conley former nuggets executive and and you know the guy who obviously did the rudy gobert trade in minnesota has got a little reunion game of his own um from there we'll make the rounds to the t wolves that we uh alluded to earlier we're gonna i don't need to break the whole thing down we'll go east we'll go west the nets have won 11 in a row boston looks a little bit not gettable but they look uh like brooklyn's coming after them a little bit um you want to start on Denver? Does that sound all right by you? Yeah, that's fine. We saw them. Uh, you saw them a couple games in Sacramento recently. I saw the second one where they actually lost. Um, probably should have won, even though they didn't play what Gordon was out that game. No Jamal Murray. Still not playing really on back-to-backs. Um, what are you, I, you were the one. I think you kind of did. You know, you did the bigger picture piece on them and yeah, yeah, really sure. around them. What was like your biggest takeaway? Well, and that this time of year for me, I love basically, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of like, if I'm not on the road in terms of getting on a plane somewhere, then you're studying the Kings and Warriors schedule and, and enjoying, you know, as the different teams come through, you get your, your kind of front row seat to the better teams <clears throat> throughout the course of the season. The Nuggets had this back-to-back set in Sacramento, and it was perfect for me because, you know, I've got a good feel for that group already, been around them a fair amount the last couple of years. Um, but the back-to-back setting created, you know, kind of a cool little window where scouting-wise you could go to the arena, you know, two nights in a row and, and not only see them on the court doing their thing, but talk to everybody around the team and just get a feel for the group. Uh, and here's, I mean, my, my two cents on them is that they've got the continuity that, you know, I, I think is for sure on, on the short list in terms of, you know, teams around the league that have that sort of continuity. They've been through a lot together. And it's not – 
linear, meaning that, you know, the Jamal Murray injury created this, this major, you know, kind of chapter that you can't sit here and say this is one of those teams a la the Utah Jazz the last couple of years where they just kept kind of, you know, falling short in the playoffs and, and, and you thought they were going to chip away at it and eventually break through and they didn't. Denver's story has been different. You know, they get to the conference finals in the bubble, you know, showed you a little glimpse of what they could be. Jamal Murray at his best at that time. But, you know, the Murray injury, him missing all of last year, Michael Porter Jr. being out last year, created something where we now didn't, you know, I think didn't know exactly what to think of them collectively coming into this season. Um, I mean, to cut to the chase here, like they're they're an elite team, in my opinion. And I think, you know, what I learned being around them, and I wrote this the other day, and it sounds like it's obvious. I don't think it was necessarily obvious, is that uh, any illusions that people might have had that in terms of their own ethos internally, that they were content just getting to a 50-plus win record, making a little bit of noise in the playoffs and calling it a day from there like they've done a couple of years in the past, um, that's not the sense I got at all. In fact, I got a sense that Jokic and what he has been able to do for all these years now has created this real sense of expectation internally and this responsibility that they believe that in the Jokic era, the Jokic prime, like they're gunning for a championship and they feel like it's one of those at least one types of things. And it's not like a, that sounds like a bravado swagger type of idea where it's like, man, the Nuggets are feeling themselves like they're the Grizzlies, you know, who, who like to kind of puff their chest and say, here we come. It's more just like it's that I use that word responsibility that they believe that Jokic is that great, that they should be able to build a roster around him to complement him and get the job done. They would love to try to do it this year, uh, you know, but they're going to keep chipping away at this thing. But that was probably the biggest revelation for me. I've actually covered the last three times they've lost the playoff series. I, you know, I um, was covering the Lakers when they were in the bubble and that was an impressive like moment for that franchise, right? They leaped further than we expected. Obviously they got to the West finals, pushed that Lakers team to six. It's, it was a weird setting. So it kind of like, I guess diminishes, um, you know, the accomplishment somewhat. I think it, in people's which I've eyes, said before, that, I don't think it should for any of those teams. Yeah, but, but yes, yeah. but you know, I mean, it, it kind of does. Like in every, yeah, I would say then, then the second season, and, and the reason I've like soured on them a little bit of a, as a playoff team, and it might be unfair because again, Jamal Murray's in neither of these playoff series, but they got swept in the second round by Phoenix. I was covering Phoenix that year. The Suns went to the finals. And then last season, the Warriors kind of just disposed of them in, in a pretty easy five games. Um, my, Aaron Gordon didn't impress me in either series. And and Michael Porter wasn't in the Warriors series because he had the continued back injury, which as of now, you know, he's playing right now. So, um, and, and then in the Suns series, he was like, absent basically i mean he was he was a near non-factor in that sweep and it's just that part of the roster has always you know i've got kind of held question marks in a playoff setting i think Jokic has shown himself well obviously in the playoffs except the only thing i would say is you know the warriors pretty relentlessly just dragged him into high screen and roll high screen and roll high screen and roll the whole series and that's something he will get targeted with more relentlessly in a playoff setting. He still was great in that series. So, so I'm not saying that. So I, I don't know. I just like I'm there a little like Utah was, you know, in the Gobert Mitchell era to me where I just question their playoff ceiling when when teams can scout and scheme and, and, and get them, you know, on a 
every other night basis in April, May, June. Um, but I guess the counter would be Jamal Murray's back, starting to get better, and you believe by April, like maybe he'll be the best version of himself this year. And then Aaron Gordon, to you know, he's having a a good year. He's having a his best season with the with the Nuggets. His numbers are up. You know, we're talking field goal percentage, rebounds, points, all that, and just eye tests, right? When you when you watch a Nuggets game. You notice him more. Oh, he's making a better defensive play here. Oh, you know, that was a power dunk. I think he probably has a dunk of the season, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so and in a crucial moment, and I, why am I? I know it's overtime, and it was a big possession. I'm forgetting which game. Who were they playing in that game? Phoenix. It was Phoenix. Yeah. 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 I'm with you. I was going to mention Gordon, and then you mentioned kind of the numbers. I had him in front of me. Seventeen point three points a game, which is almost a career high for him, which is saying something because he had all those years in Orlando where he was the featured guy offensively or one of them. Um, So 17.3, which is up almost two and a half points per game from last year, shooting 60.2% from the field, which is obviously pretty darn good. He's shooting less threes. Uh, And then the defensive side, that's where even when he wasn't scoring last couple of years, last year and a half, they've enjoyed him is that, and I wrote this too the defense for them remains the issue last time I looked they were 23rd in defensive rating they'd gotten better recently which Michael Malone has been harping on Um, so all of your takeaways I think are fair Jamal Murray and this is something I think for sure you'd have insight on because the Jamal Murray Clay Thompson comparison is a really I think appropriate one and and we've seen Clay's journey the ups and then some of the downs and then the ups again um, Jamal is, is going through that where he has gotten better, uh, but he's still, again, not playing the back-to-backs. They beat Boston without him. And then even within that, and this, I think, relates to the time of year that we're in now, you know, Bones Highland coming off the bench is an interesting guy in terms of their situation because he's he can be dynamic. He can give you 30 on any given night, but he can give you three as well. You know what I mean? And, um, and, and you know, Jamal being Jamal means I think Bones' opportunities are going to be somewhat limited, you know, even when he's out there running things with the second unit. But I think as we head into the trade deadline, I, you know, you're going to hear Bones' name a little bit because I think the Nuggets are looking at ways to get better defensively. I wrote that they're looking for defensive help, but wings and guys that are just bigger and longer. And I think there's a sense that the, the bench unit has got to get stronger and there's only well, so many here, ways I mean, they can do that. You, you want some numbers on that? I mean, the they're plus two seventy eight with Jokic on the floor this season, and they're minus one seventy eight. I'm just looking at the the the, the totals. Uh, I mean, the net ratings. If people are prefer net ratings, are obscene. Like the difference when he's playing and when like he's a, not. And, about a twenty five point swing. Yeah. yeah, regardless of how good he is, that'll kill you in a playoff series. You know, yeah. those eight minutes in a game where you just get, you know, melt away, either your lead melts away or you're tied and Jokic takes a four minute break and suddenly yeah. he comes back in and you're down 10. Like, you know, that that kills you in a game three and that kills your chances in a series. And to your point on Bones Island, I mean, when Bones Island is on the floor this season, regardless of his, you know, explosive scoring potential in 585 Bones Island minutes, they're minus 127. So. The, the units that include him haven't worked. It's not, I wouldn't say it's solely because of him, but they must reconstruct that second unit, I think, to to realize their potential because you just, you can't get pummeled like that when Jokic sits because then you can't sit him at all and then he's super tired. We've seen him, you know, 
as much as it always looks like he's exhausted, we've also seen him later in seasons, like late in playoff series when they've overused him, you know, really look exhausted. And then what happens? He's bad. It, you know, he gets much worse defensively because he's doing everything out there. He's being forced to play 43 minutes and he has to guard 65 high screens. And it's just. Although, man, I, I swear, I love that thing, that weird quality, unique quality he has where he, he might look tired. He might look like he's exhausted. But then, like, did you see this this clip with DeAndre Ayton recently uh, talking about Jokic on the bench? No. It was good. They In that Phoenix game, uh, Aiden, basically, I forget who he was talking to, one of his teammates, and, and I'm paraphrasing, but he basically was just like, man, he's like, that that dude can run. He's talking about Joker. He's like, that dude can run. Like, he looks big, but, oh, my God, he can run. You know, like, it's deceiving. And and even the way he pushes the break at times, I mean, it's incredible to watch a guy who looks like a, a big old grizzly bear. He looks like one of those, like, marathoners and, like, deeper in the marathon, but just won't give up. And, like, right. the determination, right, right. you're like, that person is exhausted, but, like, they're not slow in their pace. They're just looking increasingly exhausted. And then the ones I love are, you know, he's just kind of, like, throw, he's stumbling through the lane, looking exhausted. He, like, flips something up, and you're like, uh, like that was kind of an odd shot. And it's just <laughs> swish. You're right. Like, okay. Uh, natural segue here. Let, let's jump into the Minnesota stuff because, and the segue is this: is that Nuggets GM Calvin Booth will be the one making, you know, heading the the decisions in Denver as it relates to their roster and what they may or may not do going into the trade deadline. Well, he sits in the seat, of course, that was previously occupied by Tim Conley, the longtime Nuggets executive who built that Nuggets team and uh, and then surprisingly headed to the Timberwolves in the offseason and and just wasted no time, obviously, making, you know, probably the biggest splash of the summer in the Rudy Gobert trade. And it's just no there's no other way to to describe that deal right now other than it's it's just looking like an absolute train wreck. And with Carl Anthony Towns out, you know, that calf injury from late November, uh, he was supposed to be out four to six weeks. We're we're obviously around the four week point. At the moment, they've got some other guys out as well, but they've lost six in a row. Uh, Rudy's, you know, not playing well. I mean, our, our John Krasinski out in Minnesota had a, a line that jumped out at me from his latest piece, just highlighting the fact that uh, Walker Kessler, um, who they, I think that pick came, that was yeah, that? Yeah, that, yeah that was, that's uh, right. He was initially drafted by the Wolves. Right, thank you. So, it, like, the idea that Walker is, is out playing Rudy this year is just is less than ideal, suboptimal, as they say, in terms of the optics of that trade. But even beyond Rudy, just the Minnesota situation, it's getting obviously increasingly tense. You got uh, you know quotes coming out of locker room about players only meetings and guys saying that you know ominous comments about uh, why they're struggling. We know why we're struggling, but we're going to keep that in house type of stuff. John reported that Chris Finch, their coach, does not appear to be in trouble. And so uh, it is, I mean, to Tim's credit, you know, he has stepped up publicly and said, you know, it's on me to, to, to figure this team out from a roster standpoint. But, but man, just an absolute mess out there. Thoughts on the yeah. tools. I think Finch is shown to be like a good coach, right? Like he was in coach of the year, you know, I don't know. Did he finish top three last season? He might've, but he was definitely in the conversation. And I think schematically he's very respected around the league. Um, I watched the second half of that Detroit game the other day, and the lack of defensive effort and just general effort was, you know, it was pretty shocking. You know, especially reading John's piece and understanding, you know, how there's there's those regular season games where 
man, you really need to crank the urgency level up. We've all been there. We're like, this regular season game feels bigger than most. And it was like, you know, Minnesota, like, win this one. You got Detroit at home. You kind of need a bounce back win. You should be flying around the court. Um, and it was the opposite. And it was the opposite from, really, I think some of their main players. That, you know, This isn't, you know, very new with D'Angelo Russell, but just watching D'Angelo Russell just try to sit there and, on the backside and pass off this defensive assignment. Oh, this guy's cutting like take him, you know, instead of like following his guy in there and then watching guys kind of crash for rebounds and then looking around like, Oh man, how do you get that offensive rebound? Like you're how he got that offensive rebound. Right. Um, And the other one, Anthony Edwards, you know, he's, I think I've said it on a previous podcast, but I remember coming into the season along with the Minnesota Timberwolves hype. I remember was that ESPN rank that had three Timberwolves in the top 20, I believe it was 25. Maybe. And, you know, we can get to go bear because I think that has been the target of, of a lot of criticism because the trade was so questionable. But Anthony Edwards has not made a third season leap. I mean, you could argue he might have been better last season, at least just like in the margins of the game. And obviously, I think part of the criticism of the trade is you ushered in a much more complicated court mix for Anthony Edwards, who should be your most important piece moving forward, right? Like he he wants a more up and down open game. I mean, we could all anybody who knows basketball understands like barreling scoring two guard that wants to get to the rim like is better with more space instead of less space around him. Uh, but It doesn't he, help, and not that this is on his mind, but what's on my mind is Donovan Mitchell's ability to thrive in Cleveland. I, I always think of that in the context of Anthony's frustrations because I do understand the idea of having the runway clogged. But, you, you know, Donovan all those years obviously learned how to play with Rudy. And, and in Cleveland – That's a key word there, or key yeah. phrase, all those years. Yeah, Anthony Edwards doesn't have all those years, and they operated like, oh, Anthony Edwards is like shown promise. Well, like he's we're ready to compete. Trade all the unprotected picks that can be used in Anthony Edwards' to future. Your credit, like, you, you, it's on wax. You said this in the summer that that you had questions about them making the leap too early. They did. Yeah. They got they got drunk on the seven on the play and win. Right? I mean, I think a little bit. Well, and, and I honestly, I think it's the play and win. I think it's the ownership transfer which is a unique you know deal where it, it happens progressively yeah. with alex rodriguez and mark lore um you know and it's everything was splashy the plan was splashy the ownership stuff was splashy hiring tim conley was splashy and uh and they were they were trying to go big and it's a small market thing too you know you now even more than ever have a good feel for my neck of the woods because you've been writing a lot of king stuff this year you know small markets have to fight the urge to overreach, I think, when it comes to everything from free agency to trades. And and part of it is a it's that in uh, I guess unofficial calculus of like relevancy and 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 success. Like sometimes you're you're just trying to be uh not just it's not a relevancy thing, but you know, you know what I'm saying. Like they they went big. No pun yeah, intended. I, I think one of the issue or you know problems they created, self created was they overreacted to the Memphis series. Memphis is an awesome offensive rebounding team. I mean, we've seen what Stephen Adams that Kings game last night. Yeah, what does Stephen <laughs> Adams have? Thirteen twenty-three boards, thirteen offensive boards. Yeah, and yeah. Brandon Clark in that. And, and the reason why I'm referencing this is they played Memphis in the first round. Brandon Clark, I remember in that series, was really good on the glass. And 
Um, you know, they didn't protect the interior that well against this downhill, you know, Ja Morant Memphis team. And they didn't protect the glass well. And so they went into the offseason being like, that is the missing link. Like, the missing link is we must get a rim protector and a defensive rebounder. And then we're ready to compete. We're ready to contend. And it's like, okay, you may have gotten the guy that is the best in the league at that or has been, even though he hasn't this season. Go Bear. But you're going to create five other issues, including the fact that, like, I never thought Towns and Gobert made any sense together, particularly in a playoff setting. Like, the thought was, you know, and I remember hearing this from a lot of people around the league at the time, like, okay, come down to the playoffs. You're going to have to pick one of the two, like, down the stretch of big playoff games to play. So which of your 200 and whatever million dollar centers are you going to use? Because you're not going to be able to have both on the floor. And how are you going to be a contender when you basically have to bench a 200 plus million dollar player that was the thought uh the one thing that should be said within all this is like you know towns has been out like that they've been dealt a pretty hefty level of adversity just through the injury perspective of you know hey come together but theoretically your best player carl anthony towns is is out so which is that also ruins some time to come together for them also well, and, you, and my last thought here is, my goodness, I know I probably have recency bias, but you talk about a an executive's predicament, meaning, you know, Tim in that front office in Minnesota, and, and just trying to look at possible solutions. Now, I, I think he would probably say, no, the solution is we make this work. I don't think he sees any other path here, but around the league, you talk to people, and it's easier for rival teams to say, but I think, you know, I've run into some people recently who say, no, I think you cut your losses and, and try to flip Rudy and just get out from it. Well, that I mean, the optics of that would be awful. The the re, you know the actual impact and cost of that would be awful because of everything they already gave up. They're not going to get half of it back if that if they try to move Rudy. But it, it's a hard one, right? Because Rudy, he's the guy who's thirty. Um, you know, what are you going to do? You going to trade Carl? Um, you know, he's twenty seven years old, still really good player, and we, you know we got his doubts or doubts about him in the playoffs and things of that nature. But um, I just don't see a clean way out, and uh, and I think this is something that's going to be with them for years. Yeah, they, I mean it's it's somewhat similar to the Westbrook trade in L.A., which the Lakers did, and I think yeah, you know, regretted easier, pretty quickly. Easier exit strategy, though, right? Like less time on his deal. Um, you have a quicker exit strategy with Russell, and that's why it's not as big. And you didn't trade as much, right? You didn't trade all the not unprotected picks for Russell. Yeah. You just the big, big thing with Westbrook is you had other. You could have gone the Buddy Heel, you know, uh, King's path. You could have right. done a few things. Whereas, um, I just think the big difference is like, you know, clearly the Lakers handcuffed themselves. You also with the wake Westbrook up field. in the morning as the Lakers. That's the other thing. That that's why it's so hard for Minnesota. Is that like, in terms of just? I mean, you know, the rest of the league can't stand the fact that the Lakers, you know, the the idea that they they can fall into success because of their brand. I mean, they fell into LeBron, right? Yeah. I mean, that yeah. wasn't some grand plan that like they executed so well, and that's why they they got LeBron. But I, I just mean more on like, I mean, you've covered it extensively over the last what you'd say fifteen months. Like they've been trying to escape the Westbrook deal, you know, the Westbrook trade, and been unable yeah. to. Because of you know it handcuffed them, and I think that's a we'll see. But that seems like where the Go Bear trade might be going. Where fifteen months later, they might still have the the pretty similar concoction of players believe that it isn't working. But like, how do you get out of it? 
Agreed. All right, good stuff. We are going to take a quick break, and uh, on the other side, we're going to jump to the Eastern Conference and talk to the one and only Alex Schiffer, Brooklyn Nets beat writer, is going to join us because the Nets, this team that we thought was uh, was was kind of dead man walking, if you will, eleven in a row, looking capable of winning the whole damn thing. So, take a quick break and join Alex on the other side. All right, we got my guy Alex Schiffer on the pod. Alex, we were talking offline for a quick minute here, my friend, and uh, you got bags packed. You're hitting the road. The Brooklyn Nets are must-see TV again. Uh, this, is, this is not what we thought was going to happen a couple of months ago when we were covering everything from Kevin Durant's trade request. You know, not even just trade. You know, it always gets undersold what, what happened in the summer. It wasn't just a trade request. I mean, you're trying to get multiple, you know, members of, of the organization fired. Um, so that was its own thing, the Kyrie Irving saga, of course. Um, and here they are, 11 in a row, and you're there to cover it all. Schiff, what's up, buddy? What's going on, guys? Yeah, a few months ago when the Nets were on must-see TV, it was kind of in the same way as, like, The Bachelorette. Now it's uh, <laughs> Now it's for the basketball. That's your go-to bachelorette. All right, I learned a little bit about you there. I, I hopped off a few years ago with that, but uh, but I was just trying to think of like what's a reality show with with consistent drama. Sure. That was really where I was going sure. for. Survivor wouldn't have worked as well. You know what I mean? Like Any, anything on the channel Bravo. Um, now we're learning about Slater, man. Yeah, I don't, I don't go on that here. channel. I don't know what's on there. Tell us what are we watching on Bravo Slater? Well, I mean, you know, my wife watches a ton of things on Bravo. So. Okay. Uh, the Real Housewives franchise would be probably what you're looking for. So much so to, to you know, to, I guess, um, you know, I guess bring your metaphor together or whatever uh, is, you know, they did the commercial with, you know, where Dak Prescott's throwing it, he's flipping a table and like the Real Housewives are on there. Like, who flips a table? Anyway. Um, Kevin to, Durant to flips a table. That's, how, that's who flips a table. Kevin Durant flipped a table, got everybody in line, and now they're playing some good basketball, right? Is that the narrative here, Schiff? Yeah, I mean they uh, they went twelve and one in December. Their only loss was to Boston, and that was without uh, Ben Simmons. And uh, now they're second in the East, and kind of doing what we all thought they could if they ever got healthy and got rid of the drama. So uh, I don't want to call it a self fulfilling prophecy, but uh, it's uh, it's funny. Our friend Nick for can I call Nick a friend of the show? Or, of course. Uh, or is that, uh, yeah. We had a press conference a few weeks ago, and we were walking out of it, and he kind of looks at me and goes, "This is the longest stretch." we've had with this team where there hasn't been any talk about drama. It's just been straight basketball. And I thought, you know, that's a good point. This is a career high right now for that. It's funny. You mentioned Nick. Um, I, I, and lovingly say like he said, when, when all the drama was going on, like the absolute peak of it and, you know, Nick did a, a great job covering that. You know, he always does on that team, but that situation with Kyrie, he was real strong and he did a couple of, of different hits, media hits where, you know, and I don't blame him. Is you're you're in that mess every single day, and saying like really definitively, like this group, and I'm paraphrasing, but like this group is never like they're not going to take this anywhere positive. There's just no way. Then so you look at you, re, you know, he's reading the room, and and making that observation, and like a lot of people were, like there's just no way, right? Like the talent. I know we always say talent wins out, but there's got to be you know the dysfunction had to be accounted for, and, and it was hard to imagine that they could get through it in the way they did. Now. We've waited too long already to not even mention, you know, the Steve Nash to Jacques Vaughn change has obviously worked. Uh, and I would love to have you unpack that a little more to analyze his impact, because in terms of 
things that changed, that's the biggest one. And then, of course, you know, Kyrie playing well and being out there. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think for starters, I, I think the most – I don't know if glaring is the word, but but stark difference that I've seen between the, the Steve Nash and, and Jacques Vaughn transition to me is just I think Jacques' previous coaching experience has really kind of shown through all this. And and obviously, Steve, you know, when he got the job, there's a lot of talk of how he was just a Warriors consultant. And, you know, he hadn't ever been on a bench before in that capacity, even though he was like a, an extension of the coaching staff as a player. But, you know, um, you know, I always thought with Steve and and. The, the tricky part with this, right, is you can't evaluate Steve's tenure without talking about all the crazy stuff he dealt with, too, and how he was never really – he you know, a stat for you is uh, – I I'm, don't have the number pulled up, but this past Saturday when the Nets played the Hornets, uh, Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, and Ben Simmons, the amount of minutes they played together was in the 300s, I think, for this season. That passed what the total number of minutes played by Kevin, Kyrie, and James Harden together were, which oh, kind of wow. shows you just how, how – uh, how short the time Steve had with his main stars was as, as the coach. But, you know, I always thought Steve Nash kind of kept his timeouts in his pocket as if he was going to cash him in, like, you know, like the McDonald's Monopoly contest, right? You like trade him in for a prize at the end of, or whatever. Um, you know, his rotations, I always kind of thought, you know, he, he never really got a full groove with some of that stuff. And, um, you know, there'd be a guy that would be hot once, you know, I remember one of, and this is obviously one of the first games as a coach, but I remember like Torian Prince before the first James Harden trade, was having like a great stretch and giving them great minutes. And then like Steve just pulled him for no reason. And, you know, that was one of those things where I kind of would keep an eye on, like had that change and it, it got better, but not down to the science that Jock has it with right now. So I, I just think that the, the change in experience at the top has kind of shown and, you know, like. There was all the talk of Kyrie waving off Steve Nash. You know, Jacques Vaughn's quick to call a timeout if that happens. So hmm, I, I just think that you've seen a lot of that that come out of it. And um, I have another point to make that I'm now dropping the ball on. But, you know, it, right. oh, no, you know, go back to the bubble. If you remember Jacques Vaughn in the bubble, that was a glorified G League team the Nets had. It was Joe Harris, Jared Allen, and Karis LeVert and Garrett Temple. And the rest of those guys I don't even think are in the league anymore. And, you know, they beat the Clippers. They beat the Warriors. So, you know, I, I think if anything that's come out of this also is that Jacques Vaughn's made a really good case that they maybe should have gone with him after the bubble for that first iteration of the super team when Kevin Durant first came back from the Achilles. Right. This to me is like again, as somebody who's not around on an everyday basis, I could I couldn't tell you like Alex can the you know different schematic things Jacques Vaughn might be doing, but it's another example to me that it, in the NBA, if the star players are out on you. You're done as a coach. I mean, regardless of if you're doing a good or bad job, whatever, like if they just aren't in and Kevin Durant made it pretty clear this summer, right? I mean, Sam, you you reference it coming into the whole thing. Like he was talking about having Steve Nash fired. Like they just seem like a more inspired group that wants to play since Steve Nash left. I don't know if that is Steve Nash's fault or not, but like that to me, although it's this funny, summer, I hear you Slater. I want to give me, give me your counter to this. Yeah. Kevin played his ass off when Steve was coaching. You know what I mean? Like, I've never seen, a, like, the vibe that you're referencing, I get, but it was confusing to me because to Kevin's credit, in terms of, I mean, it, I, it, you know, I'm one of those people that it does make my stomach turn when guys decide I want this coach out, so I'm going to dog it, you know. And, you know, I mean, like even James late in his Brooklyn tenure, we saw some terrible basketball from James Harden for, for his own reasons he wanted out of town. But Kevin was putting up MVP caliber type numbers, but they just, I mean, they weren't winning. And I don't know if there's, is there nuance there where, you know, he's pulling back on the winning basketball plays. I don't even know how you, how you unpack. Maybe he's speaking for 
the team. You know, I don't know. I mean, like you, you, Alex referenced the Kyrie stuff, and like there seemed to be a lack of, um, you know, he didn't seem to have Kyrie's ear at the end if he's just like waving off play calls and stuff. So you know, maybe he's speaking for others. Well, and going back to you know uh, the Nick Friedel comment about how this team just isn't going to make it work. You know, I, I think one thing that Kevin deserves credit on is when Kyrie got suspended for the documentary stuff. You could argue that if if there was a time to to dog it, it was during that stretch, and then you know. They maybe blow it all up and and head toward the lottery because they do have the the pick this year with Houston and Houston's also heading for the lottery, and he's he's been nothing but consistent since. So I, I as you said, you know, say what you want about Steve Nash as a leader, but Kevin never has not mailed it in once as a net with all this stuff, and and obviously his minute load is high and everything that started to drop a little bit recently. But yeah, I mean he, the production and on court stuff from him, regardless of his faith in the coaching staff, hasn't uh, hasn't wavered. So another element or another aspect of this that, that I would love your thoughts on, Schiff, is the Sean Marks experience. Now, Sean's very close to the vest in general, personality-wise. Uh, I you know I feel confident predicting he's never, I think even after his Nets tenure comes to an end at some point, he's never going to do some interview where he shares his true inner thoughts about this experience, not really the way he's wired. But if I'm him, <laughs> the part that just cracks me up is like, all right, franchise player, asks the owner to fire you uh and the premise of course being that this roster is not good enough and you did not do a good enough job at your job to you know deserve to hold on to it to see this roster do what it's doing you know and i also would i think boldly predict that kevin's not really going to do a mea culpa and say okay i got the marks part wrong um but how do you feel like sean is moving through this time when you see his roster coming together like this yeah, you know, I got a few thoughts on that. I mean, Ke- Kevin's done. I don't know. I don't know if it's a mea culpa. You know, he he joked that um he's probably the reason the Nets didn't get a Christmas Day game from all the yeah, stuff I over saw the that. summer. Yeah, that was good. And he did say in a question I asked him about uh, the trade request this summer that he has liked what Sean's done with the roster. This is going into the season. Um, so so there's been some credit uh, dished out there a bit in, on, on both fronts. Um, you know, I remember when Sean was asked about the the ultimatum Kevin gave on. Media Day, he essentially said how, you know, look, this is professional sports. You know, you don't really see this elsewhere. You know, this is part of what you sign up for in a way. And is it a bit of a cop-out answer? Yeah, but is he right? I mean, yeah, you know, you don't see the top employee at a lot of other companies call for the CEO's job, right? You don't see the the top insurance salesman at Aflac call for the Ducks job and uh, the CEO's job, <laughs> right? So, um, so... I, I, That's my you know, favorite I, pop culture reference you dropped yet. Continue. Thank you. Yeah. I, I've, I've, been, I've been, honestly haven't sitting You're on that trying, one for like man. months. It, I've been it, waiting. Beat for that out one. the Bachelorette, um, huh? Um, <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I think on the roster front, though, you know, I feel like this season's kind of been the first time where there's almost been like a marriage between the Nets and the stars they signed in Kyrie and Kevin, and that they're playing well. But again, you look at the supporting cast. Sean Marks traded for Royce O'Neal. He drafted Nick Claxton. Ed Sumner and Utah Watanabe are both on non-guaranteed contracts, and they've given the Nets good minutes this year. You know, those are some of those back-of-the-roster guys that the Nets have had success with before Kevin and Kyrie came to town, you know, turning the, the Joe Harris's and the Spencer Dinwiddie's, these guys that were kind of on their last leg in the NBA into, into established guys. So, um, you know, I it's, it's interesting to me, you know, Sean's never really gotten a uh, uh, – hat in the race really for executive of the year despite everything he's done right like he barely got any votes the year after he signed Kevin and Kyrie even though Kevin haven't played yet and in the past few years hasn't materialized but I'm I don't have a vote for that stuff but I am it's always interesting to me how it shakes out and I'm kind yeah, of curious all the to see how it, executives yeah 
And, and so I'm going to be curious to kind of see how it shakes out this year, just because I, I feel like, again, this is the first time where you see the elements of what, how he got them out of the gutter they were in when he first came to the organization after the, the post Celtics trade and all that with the lack of picks and also what, uh, what Kevin and Kyrie have brought. So it, 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 that's why it's going to be an interesting deadline to me is kind of what do they do and how do they do it in terms of um, try. I, I think they need to trade some of their offense for defense, frankly. I don't know if what there's no trade after that makes sense to me right now. And, you know, I'm only so good at playing GM, but, but I think it's been a good year for him since that ultimatum was issued, frankly. So Alex, they're 10th in defense right now. How, how did they get up there? Why are they 10th in defense? Yeah, you know, I, I don't think that there's been Jacques Vaughn. It's funny, you know, everyone talks about how Steve Nash was huge on the switching, but in the short time that Jacques took over for Kenny Atkinson before the country shut down in 2020, he uh he was the one that kind of had him switch more. So he he's kind of the the real um he he's the one that kind of deserves the credit for them getting into that more. But you know, I honestly think a lot of it's just effort. You know, um I, I'm gonna butcher the number of contests, but I think it's like 400. You know, Kevin Durant and Nick Claxon are like top five in the league in effective field goal percentage against per, you know, um for guys with I think a minimum of you know 400 contests. So, like, you know, to me, it's kind of like when they try, they're pre- when they contest, you know, they're pretty effective. I mean, Nick Claxon's had back-to-back six-block games. You know, I, I think there was a lot of talk um when especially last season when they were going through you know the um the car wash of washed up centers with Blake Griffin, LaMarcus Aldridge, Paul Millsap, Andre Drummond um that they didn't you know that clearly they were missing Jared Allen who they dealt in that Harden trade and was clearly um you know having that all-star year and and I think Nick Claxton I don't want to say he's like fully replaced him but I, I think that that presence in the middle has definitely affected the way teams guard them now that he's he's really come into his own on that front and, you know, Kyrie's given them effort. I think Royce O'Neal has been a great uh, defensive addition for them. To me, he's almost kind of like a free safety, the way he kind of chases down um, long passes and, and intercepts them. And, and you know, Ben Simmons, we, who we haven't even talked about yet, you know, he's still kind of coming to his own offensively. I, but, I was wondering how much Ben Simmons has had to do with this, you know? Yeah, no, I I definitely think that he he deserves some credit. You know, he's... He's get you know, first off, he his I didn't realize till he first started, you know, being around us every day. Like he's got some of the biggest hands I've ever seen. Like I kind of understand um some of the passes that he can make a little more and, and the way he's able to get in the passing lanes. He's just a big, big dude on that front. And I, I definitely think that he's helped. I don't think he's had a game where like, you know, he's he's kind of pulled a Darrell Revis and got a guy on an island, but like teams he, have changed the way they attack the Nets clearly because of him just being out there in general. Yeah. Go ahead, Slater. I will cover the the game they just killed the Warriors they scored 91 in the first half so you know most people would look at the offensive side that night and they were super hot from three but defensively that night Ben Simmons was put on Jordan Poole you know no Steph Curry and he really bothered Jordan Poole I think Jordan Poole went like four or 17 seven turnovers something like that and then you know Steve Kerr referenced the fact post game like Poole's gonna have to get used to that without Steph so that was a night I thought Simmons just kind of took an assignment and really changed the game because if you've looked at the Warriors non-Curry, like the games they win are the games that Jordan Poole scores 30, 40. Um, And then same game, I would say, uh, the game changed early when Jonathan Kaminga tried to drive into the lane a couple times and like, you know, didn't really have a plan. He was just either going to try to finish or wrap around a pass. And it's Nick Claxton and Kevin Durant with their just enormous wingspan tipping passes away turnovers threes on the other end transition threes and you know if you're talking nick claxon kevin durant ben simmons if they're playing really well and actively that is a really long 
disruptive front line. It just is. And then, like, you can hide Kyrie a little bit. Um, and Royce O'Neal's a fine, you know, I guess, perimeter piece. Although Rudy Gobert might, you know, have have some issue with that. Yeah, no, I, I agree with all th- everything you said. You know, the, one of the big questions that I think a lot of people had going into the year with this team was can Kyrie, with Kyrie, can Ben Simmons and Nick Claxton kind of coexist together? And so far as the year's gone on, those numbers have gotten better and better. You know, I think it's a good question because there's obviously so many factors. You know, uh, Nick Claxton has an injury history, and this is the longest stretch in which he's been available and active and what have you. Um, I, I think he's, you know, an interesting candidate for most improved player. Um we talked, you know, Ben Simmons coming off the back surgery and the long layoff, the coaching change. You know, um, I, I think that there's a lot of factors. And I don't know if it's one thing as to why they've gotten better as a unit in addition to just, you know, um, chemistry, whatnot, and reps together. So, no, I, when, when they have those three out there, they are long, they are switchable, and they can give you a number of different problems, whether it's rim protection, um, getting into passing lanes, et cetera. So, I, I, as you said, though, you can hide Kyrie and then that other person, you know, whether it's Joe Harris, whether it's Royce O'Neal, um, Whoever it may be, that it definitely Utah Watanabe. They've gone with the lineup, I think, with those three and uh, Utah out there as well. You know, he gives them some length and he's a good help defender. So they, uh, th- those three, though, are a very good foundation reg- for defensively, regardless of who the other two players out there are. So, big picture, this is always a good sign. And I'm hoping I didn't mess up this little nugget and tidbit. I just looked at it right now. But Boston, the Pelicans, and the Nets. The only three teams in the league with top 10 offensive defensive ratings, which has always been a benchmark for title contenders, uh, an important stat that, you know, historically speaking, you know, that bodes extremely well for your group uh, in terms of the question of how real this is, how substantive this is. You know, I think that's a great sign. And then to pivot and, and throw it back to you, Schiff, uh, the, the last thing we haven't really talked much about and to get your thoughts on is Kyrie just from a basketball standpoint, playing his tail off. So these are his numbers since he came back, um, you know, from the documentary controversy. Uh, they've gone 15-3. and three. He's averaging, where's it at here? I just lost it. 25.9 points a game uh, on the old 50-40-90 splits, 51% overall, 41% from three, and on high volume, eight attempts per game from beyond the arc, 90.8 from the line. Uh, 4.5 assists, 4.9 rebounds. Uh, doesn't get much better than that. Uh, how are you seeing Kyrie? Yeah, you know, as you kind of said, I mean, he's – him and Kevin both, I think I, – I had Kevin splits pulled up a minute ago, but I, he's also – I want – I mean, he's having a ridiculous season, but I think he's also – yeah, he's 56 right now from the field, 36 from three, and 93 essentially percent from the line. So, you know, there, you have two guys that are essentially both in the 50-40-90 territory – you know, he's, he's been engaged. I, <laughs> Which, by the way, been... is, is Steve Nash territory, ironically. That's, yes, yes. Steve I, I wasn't going to be the one to make that joke. I yeah. My act's over on that front tonight. But, um, um, you know, I, when you have both those guys going 50-40-90, I think, again, you've seen a lot of what it opens up for the rest of the guys. You know, Nick Claxton leads the NBA in field goal percentage. Judah Watanabe with the threes. Um, the, the domino effect there has been huge for them, I think, and that hasn't been there before. Um. Kyrie, as you said, he's been engaged. He, you know, you look at their numbers in crunch time, you know, they've been lights out. And it's to me, it's going to be very interesting. Just I don't want to put the cart before the horse, especially with this team. But, you know, kind of as you talked about the the rock bottom part of this team early in the season and how they're going to get off the floor. I mean, you know, there was skepticism during that suspension. Does Kyrie come back? You know, has he played his last NBA game? And now, you know, you wonder what the free agency market's going to look like for him if he can keep this up. 
Um, I mean, Alex, I quoted, and this is in the same vein of, of talking about Fredell reading the room and, and feeling like, you know, things weren't going to work out. I had an anonymous executive in one of my pieces say he wasn't sure Kyrie would play in the league again. Yeah. Like it's it's remarkable to go from there to here. Yeah. And, and to me, it's going to be really interesting. You know, um, again, not trying to put the car before the horse, but I was talking to someone about this the other day. You know, in New York, you just saw Jacob deGrom leave the Mets because the, the team essentially didn't want to give him a five-year deal. Um given his injury history and whatnot and the Rangers gave him that the Nets were looking at the Mets were looking at more like a three-year deal. I don't think it's a bad comp, honestly, for like right now, as we speak, what this could look like going into the summer. I mean, does this current stretch that he's on, you know, make up for everything that's happened the past few years? And, you know, would, would you still be comfortable giving him, you know, five years in the full max? Does this change all that? Or would you rather keep him on like a three-year deal or something like that, or a three plus one type of thing? just given how this has all gone so far, you know, before this stretch, you know, I, I mentioned that stat about them with the time of Ben, Kevin and Kyrie together. You know, I think that just kind of shows how you put it against some of the other trios in the league. It probably doesn't hold much of a candle, just given how healthy Milwaukee was last year before Middleton went down in the playoffs, Boston, aside from Robert Williams, you know, it kind of shows just how low the bar has been just for consistent chemistry around here. So, you know, he he's playing great. He had that buzzer beater in Toronto. I mean, you know, when they've needed a clutch basket out of him, even before then, just, you know, in the final seconds of games, he's done it. So, you know, I'm I'm kind of curious to see, is he an all-star starter this year too? And, and you know, he's making the case for all NBA. It, it, again, it's not a one-to-one, I'm using these New York baseball metaphors, but it's, um, you know, it, it's a little bit to me kind of like the, uh, the Aaron Judge situation where to give a Northern California reference of some sort for you gentlemen, but, um, you know, he turns Source down subject, the ex- by the way, my giants didn't get him. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I didn't know if you were giants or raised. That's why I kind of kept it out there. You added yourself, but I did right. I did. Aaron judge bets on himself. Doesn't take the extension has this huge year. And now is looking at more money and gets, gets paid. Kyrie has to opt into the player option, you know, is putting together this tremendous season and now potentially looking at something bigger than that. So, I, uh, I'm, I'm very curious to see how this market unfolds for them. And, you know, I, I don't want to be the wet blanket to end it on, but I do, th- you know, it's funny. I have a, f- a childhood friend who's a huge Nets fan that I usually use as like the pulse for the fan base when I'm, I'm thinking of ideas or, you know, whatever. And I said, are you all in with the team right now? And he goes, you know, I feel like if I am, I haven't learned anything from the past few years. And, um, you know, the team, you know, remember, cause Christmas was just recently, the Nets were in first place in the East on Christmas 2021 after uh, Nick Claxton dunked on LeBron. They, you know, closed out that Christmas Day game against the Lakers. And then it's kind of when it went to hell with that losing streak. And as you mentioned, the Harden Domino, you were with me in Sacramento, Sam, when uh, Coolio, rest in peace, performed at halftime. Yeah, and the right. Kings beat the the Nets with Harden and Irving. So I, I'm very curious to kind of see where this team is at the deadline and are they making any moves to potentially go all in? Are they even making any moves at all? Cause they finally have chemistry and that's been all they've been going for, for a while now. Um, you know, and, and how do they look against Boston the next time around? How do they look against Milwaukee with Middleton? I think Friday's game against the Pelicans is a great test in New Orleans. So I, uh, I mean, they're, they're trending in the right direction, everything, but uh, it's, to me, it's going to be an interesting month, especially with some of the, the playoff teams coming up on their schedule. Cause this has been a relatively soft part of their schedule. All things considered, you know, Charlotte, Atlanta the other night, um, you know, they, they've they've taken care of business on this front since they lost to that. You know, it was like the blue coats against the Nets when they didn't have Harden, Tucker, you know, they, they rested not Tucker, but Maxi and beat Harden. They rested a bunch of guys and lost because of Shake Milton. So they've beaten the teams they should have more than anything else during this stretch as well. 
you had a question within there about Kyrie that I kind of wanted to get back to about like, you know, would you now be comfortable basically maxing him? Um, this is way too short of a sample and, and you kind of alluded to it, but if it was the judge season, this is like a two week stretch of like, uh, you know, 12 home runs, you know, wow. What, what a nice stretch. He, he hasn't had the full season and he has a much more concerning, you know, previous few seasons than Aaron judge ever had. And it's, he just c- carry it through the playoffs, you know, stay around the team, play well throughout the season, have a strong playoffs. They don't need to go win the title for, for you to feel more comfortable about Kyrie, but he's got to play, through the playoffs and give good effort and focus level through there. And, and it's just to me, I would still also be terrified of, I mean, the idea we, you know, we've seen the way he moves when he has contractual security, you know what I mean? And that's the toughest part of this whole thing is that part, that window's already closed in terms of trying to analyze the way he moves earlier in his contract. He's got a massive amount of incentive right now to not only be playing the way he's playing, but to minimize, you know, the off-court headlines. Um, and so all of this, I would argue, and again, these executives get paid a lot of money to to cut through all the noise and to make these decisions. Like, all of this information is virtually irrelevant as it relates to your comfort level giving him a long-term deal. What makes it interesting to me, too, is, you know, um. After this season, Durant's got three more years left on his deal before that extension he signed last summer runs out. That's why I kept bringing up the DeGrom situation just with the three-year thing because I, if I, if I were the Nets, as you said, it the the three years to me makes me sleep a lot better at night just given that it lines up with Durant. And then afterwards, you know, you see what's on the other side of that era. But beyond that right now, and, and again, is that a three-year um, loaded with incentives or whatever? Um would be interesting to me, but again, that that's just another thing to kind of watch as the season goes on. In terms of, as as you said, Slater, you know, it's a great sample size right now, but it's still a small one, and that's where, as you said, he's got to build on this. They've had, you know, up at kind of my last point about the Christmas uh, record last year. The part that usually the first part of the season is when the Nets have been pretty good, regardless in recent history. It's when the calendar turns where they start to run into some trouble, which is why you know checking in at the end of January isn't a bad, uh, bad idea with this team just given that's when the 10 they had the 10 game losing streak you know start around i think the end of the month or, or middle of the month last year after durant went down so you know th- there's still a lot as good as this stretch has been and harmonious as it's been and how i haven't been looking up things i didn't expect to look up when covering a basketball team has been um it's still a small sample size right no agreed good stuff shift this was short notice and you stepped up man appreciate you good to see you uh enjoy that road trip we look forward to your coverage there thank you as always to the loyal listeners uh this was a a fun return to kick off tip off the new year and uh we'll talk to you next week thanks guys